the challenge, the opportunity to connect. The 1960s, a time of imagination and change, a time of anger and fear. The 1960s, a program called Challenge. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Looked at our connections, our divisions, through the lens of faith. Nearly 60 years later, during these challenging times, we'll take a new look at our divisions, our connections, in a new program called Challenge 2.0. Faith communities are subject to the same polarization seen throughout the United States. Yet an organization called the Faith Action Network coordinates the activities of more than 150 such groups in the state of Washington. Band, as it's called, asserts that translating prayer into policies is valid, needed, and can build communities. That then is the subject of this edition of Challenge 2.0. So I'm very pleased to have three guests who are very much involved in this issue of translating values and ethical issues into policies and moving them forward. We have with us Elise Deguer of the Faith Action Network. Elise, you're the uh, executive director of that. Thank you very much for joining us. And uh, the Policy Engagement Director of Faith Action Network, Kristen Ang. Kristen, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having us, Jeff. And Jennifer Bereskin, who's also been on this program before, uh, is a fellow board member from Paths to Understanding, the organization that sponsors the program that we are doing right now, and also does a lot of work as a housing justice advocate. Uh, Jennifer, thanks for joining us as well. Thanks. Thank you for being, thank you for allowing me to be here today. Well, as we read with uh, some trepidation, uh, either uh, passages on social media and the print media or uh, watch broadcast media, we see a wide range of disarray, uh, polarization among not only just the population as a whole, but also among faith communities. Uh, it could seem surprising that an organization such as yours could coordinate uh, the efforts and focus the efforts of more than 100 different faith communities. I guess my first question is, how do you do that? What makes that possible? Elise, I might ask you to begin with that first. Good question, Jeff, and thank you for having us again. It's really good to be here in this conversation. Um, I just think it comes down to a couple things, that there is a call to work for justice among all our faith traditions and a real desire to do that together. We know we're stronger together. Um, I think part of Faith Action Network success over these last 11 years has been the foresight and the bridge building that our founding staff and board members did of working together to build something new. And when they came together, they said the way forward is multi-faith, is interfaith, um, you know, springing from two uh, traditionally Christian ecumenical organizations. Um, they wanted to move forward with people of other faith traditions. And I think that was a really good call 11 years ago. And I think in this area, there is a history of ecumenical and interfaith collaboration. And maybe it's because we're in this spiritual but not religious zone where people find their commonalities. Um, so I think during this polarized time, there's, there's a true desire to find that which unites us and does not divide us. For people on the outside looking in, they might be surprised that uh, you could get people of uh, disparate viewpoints and disparate religious values and orientations. Uh, what sort of 
benefits have you seen that maybe surprised you as you started working with these people of different backgrounds? Well, I think sometimes people in neighborhoods don't even necessarily know members of congregations just a few blocks over. So one of the wonderful things in gathering people across our state is they get to meet their neighbors of faith and conscience who are doing work for justice together. Um, and then naturally there are friendships that cross the denominations and religious traditions. Um, I think that bringing together 164 faith communities as we do, majority uh, currently Christian, but we are growing into our multi-faith vision with synagogues, mosques, Buddhist communities, a Sikh Gudwara, and Unitarians, among others. So um, we work beyond our network, but, but it's easier when we know a faith community has taken a pledge to work with FAN, because then we know who to talk to, we know who the faith leader is, and we are able to bring them into meetings with their um, elected officials and others. So I think the beauty is that <clears throat> as people meet each other across denominations, they find their commonalities mm -hmm. and together we can work for religious freedoms. That's a really key point for us right now to preserve religious freedom when it is threatened on so many levels, um, nationally, locally. Kristen, I might ask you, as you engage with legislators and the work that you do uh, in Olympia and beyond, certainly, how is this a challenge and how does it improve basically your ability to access and offer some motivation to legislators and their staffs to seriously consider some of these issues? Uh, legislators uh, within the political spectrum are very open to people of faith and of conscience, since they do come, uh, a lot of them do come um, from faith backgrounds or understand it. And like Elise said, we are not bound by dogma, but by shared values, mm -hmm. which is not a democratic or a Republican value. Uh, this is about like, let's say feeding children, housing, homelessness. We can all agree that everyone should have a home, that everyone should be fed, that we should be helping people with their education and careers, that these families should be supported. Mm -hmm. So when we come from that perspective, the doors do open to us because we are not dogmatic. We are not a political party. We are telling you what's happening within our communities and that they know that we are highly involved. We are often Faith communities and people of conscience are often the front lines in your community trying to support or help out with what's happening, particularly uh, during the pandemic. Jennifer, I might ask you, because you have come on as a board member of Past Understanding, which is ecumenical uh, and interfaith in its very nature, uh, what persuaded you, given the issues that you have a passion for, uh, that this is a fruitful approach as opposed to just continuing on within the community or communities that you're a part of? You know, so when I think about um, my ancestors and the ones who, you know, sacrificed and, and did what they could to ensure that I was here today, I really try to lead from our values, our, our, our core values within our uh, traditional teachings and cultural practices, which is, you know, to, to help uplift all people, 
Um, you know, we, in our community, um, traditionally, be prior to the new people coming, we, we would not have hunger. We would not have people without a place, without a family unit, without these um, basic human, you know, basic human needs, uh, because that value of seeing each other as human beings was really important. And I think that is what um, a lot of us are trying to do, which is to help people see each other as human beings and understand that um, being able to help uplift each other is going to benefit us all as, as a community, as a whole. Um, so, you know, we, we often say we have to yahout, which is to uh, push forward together, which can only be completed together. Um, we were taught that no task, no matter how big or small, can be completed by ourselves. We, we need that other human being to help us. And, and in that way teaches us that we need a community. Uh, we need to be a community um, and to understand, as my sister would tell me, it takes a long time to learn how to be a human being. And I, mm -hmm. and I think after, after all the events that we've all experienced the last few years, I think that's really reawakened people to seeing I would hope to see each other as human beings. Uh, Elise and Kristen, uh, you have developed an agenda and are seeking to move that forward. If you would tell us a little bit about what the key elements of that agenda are and how you happen to arrive at those as choices, those as priorities. Well, we'll start and let our expert in the policy uh, arena, Kristen, um, take over. But really, we every year, all year, look at our values, our core values about economic justice, about housing and homelessness and hunger, uh, criminal justice, uh, environmental justice, healthcare, civil rights, um, gun violence prevention, so many. And we say, what will we focus on this year? And um, we're a broad and diverse network. So we have many, many concerns. So we have just released um, and are working towards a legislative agenda that's really big and ambitious, um, but it's tied to our values. So um, I would just encourage those watching to, to download on our website the annotated version, which um, combines our values with what those bills are we're working on that move those values forward mm -hmm. and also identifies our coalition partners because we couldn't do this alone. We do this with 25, 30 coal really strong coalition partners. Some of the pressing issues that we are facing today is what comes up into our legislative agenda, whether that is universal free school meals for all children, which would be a giant step towards ending child hunger in this decade. Uh, or through health equity to immigrants campaign to provide health access and insurance to all Washingtonians, regardless of immigration status up to 138% of the federal poverty level, all the way to our faith communities who, are, who have been so distraught over gun violence that they would like to see legislation pass, such as the assault weapons ban and firearms industry liability. Mm -hmm or to even what we've seen in the past because due to climate change, extreme heat, there is an extreme heat uh, utility moratorium shutoff. 
uh, legislation plan, as well as uh, being allies to the indigenous community in the missing and murdered indigenous women and persons cold case unit that's mm. being proposed by the attorney general that we are highly supportive of. Let me ask you, uh, let's just break this, unpack this a little bit. And you were talking about one of the priorities is universal school meals. Uh, are there other states that currently have in effect programs like you're hoping to see adopted in Washington? And what benefits have you observed in those places that we could expect to see here? Yes, uh, California and Maine. Um, Colorado actually passed it through an initiative. They were willing to pay for this. Mm -hmm. um, in Vermont, they continued it despite the fact that there's no more federal funding for free school meals. And they saw that test scores were up on communities that were, were students who needed the meals as well mm -hmm. as others, in fact, and that there was less suspensions due to behavioral issues. And so there has been um, I would say a ben an increase of benefits to our community, to our schools, and less of the shame factor, less of the shame factor for some people who don't access these, who sometimes are eligible for these meals, but do not access it due to shame and being singled out. I heard an interesting statement the other day, and you know, there's the concept of uh, paying it forward, where if you go through like a coffee stand and you say, I'll take care of the person behind me, and somebody made the point, and I think it was a uh, it was an eye opener that re that is good, fine and good. But why not stop at the local public school and say, are there any students that are behind and therefore having trouble getting lunches? I'd like to donate X dollars to go ahead and make it possible. This would eliminate that problem, then, wouldn't it? It would, and and that is nice. I, I I'm often applauding um, figures who you know, pay for an entire school's meals, but we can do it systemically as a whole society so that it is sustainable, that it's not dependent on one or two people, that this mm -hmm. is something that will go on and children and families do not have to worry about. As we've seen from the pandemic, I call it the great reveal because it revealed good things as well as about ourselves, mm -hmm. about mutual aid, but it also revealed the cracks in our society where we have been lacking in resources mm -hmm. where, or where we could have done better. Right now, the concept of universal free school meals, maybe 10 years ago, people weren't ready. They now know that we can do it and it makes sense. And on the uh, issue of uh, healthcare for uh, uh, immigrants or uh, undocumented uh, immigrants, we have seen during the pandemic that we can't isolate one community from the other. What sort of uh, larger community benefits outside of just the value of human health and access to health care. As you talk to the legislators, what sort of key points are you going to be bringing up as to the value for that? Well, they've actually already approved the program. It is now about funding because they did see a benefit in our mm -hmm. communities to keeping people healthy. Throughout Washington, as you said, during the pandemic, you can't just divide people and say that one people will be healthy and the others won't be, and it won't affect everybody. What I think the reason why our agenda is large and the reason why we think about everybody, because we know an injustice anywhere is injustice everywhere and that it spreads. Mm -hmm. If we can help someone with their health at the very beginning, it is also less costly when they have major things happen to them. And then they're in the ER and eventually everyone pays. I believe that we all pay in the end. We mm -hmm. just might as well invest wisely in the very beginning. 
And on the issue of gun violence, we've seen what has been termed a discouraging uh, landscape for that in terms of some Supreme Court rulings. Uh, how are the measures that are under consideration or will be under consideration take that into account and manage to get around that? These particular bills were proposed by the Attorney General of Washington, Bob Ferguson, and supported by the Alliance of Gun Responsibility, which is the expert organization on gun legislation in our state who works who works nationally. So th these are experts. We also have an attorney general to look at the legalities to ensure that it is constitutional and will be willing to defend it if it is ever challenged. So we, as an organization and as a policy director, I do have confidence that this would be constitutional. Elise, uh, share your perspective on this as well. Yeah, you know, there's um, nothing that brings people out of their synagogues and faith communities more than when innocent people are harmed by gun violence. Just this year, we marched again in June um, when the Texas school shooting happened. And I think that it, it strikes very deep and it is a unifying um, issue for faith communities. Um, it was very powerful to witness uh, the attorney general uh, announce that he was going to work on this um, at a press conference and we are all in. And it's really inspired some of our local advocates to, to sharply focus. I mean, again, we have so many things we work on but um, Emmanuel Presbyterian Church in Tacoma has chosen this as their key issue this year and have already had a couple forums um, and are gathering again in January, another forum um, to build support as they know what gun violence means on their streets. So they're responding um, with the solution. I just wanted to add one thing um, that Kristen so um, aptly mentioned the learnings of the pandemic. I think the many, many bills on our agenda um, spring from the learnings of the pandemic. One of them, putting cash in people's pockets and that people who are on the edge do better when cash that they can determine their needs um, for food, shelter, whatever, healthcare, whatever that they seek. Um, they do better. So the Working Families Tax Credit is an example of an idea that started a decade ago, um, was approved in the past decade, was, was funded only recently, and now will we'll come into um, reality, will we'll launch in February. And we are doing um, work in faith communities to make sure people know that they qualify, low-income people know that they qualify for this benefit. And that's just the arc of you have an idea and you work on it piece by piece through a decade and it, it comes to pass and will help people in this post-pandemic time. And relating very strongly to that is an issue that I know is near and dear to the heart of Jennifer, and that is what I think is loosely called the baby bonds, uh, but more accurately, if I'm correct, the Washington Futures Fund. Could you give us a little background on that, Jennifer, and what you believe the benefits would be of that? Thank you. So I uh, am part of the, I was part of the advisory council, the Washington Future Fund, that um, 
initially last session, this this bill was brought um, by State Rep. Monica Stonier and State Senator Yasmin Trudeau. And so, uh, and working with our state treasurer's office um, and our treasurer to pull together this uh, legislation to look at uh, how we could disrupt or dismantle childhood poverty. Um, I was uh, had I had done work with uh, Governor Jay Inslee's poverty reduction work group, so I was part of that group that kind of built on um, this concept of, you know, if we can dismantle childhood poverty or disrupt it, the the overall uh, growth of our people um, and and our economy as a whole was going to be much better. And so, I think um, that that being that they recognize as you've mentioned during this pandemic, uh, where we were lacking in the system, where the system was needing strengthening. So this, this um, a, a group of us, a group um, in the legislator, as well as community members um, came together. We, we worked on um, providing, uh, well, choosing the, the, the consulting group that would work on this wealth inequality study and all of this um, is available on the state treasurer's uh, website. So the executive summary and the findings that came out of this. And what they had found was that um, children, 47% of children um, are born on the, the Medicaid or Apple Health. And so we have 47% of our children being born into poverty. And one of the strategies with the Baby's Bond program was to provide a, um, a debt-free trust fund for our most vulnerable um, kids in, across Washington state. And so what we're hoping to do is um, having this, this bill pass this coming session to uh, be able to support, the first cohort would support uh, 700,000 children. You know the the purpose of the funds are to either allow the person to use it towards a higher education it's also um, an option to use it to put down as a down payment for a house or to uh, have that funds to start a business and one of the most powerful statistics i learned while in the governor's committee was that for every one dollar you invest in dismantling childhood poverty yields a $7 return. And so when you think about um, this is an investment in our youth and our future generations. And I think what has been the hardest thing for people to acknowledge is that poverty is not a personal choice. Mm -hmm. Nobody chooses to be in poverty or, or chooses to have generational poverty for their children. It's, it's a systemic issue. It's a federal and a state policy issue. And I, I see our, our, our legislative champions slowly, slowly picking away at, at where we're, where it needs to be fixed mm -hmm. and, and really ensuring that, you know, all of our kids have the ability to thrive. They all, they all deserve to thrive and be successful. So initially, if we could get it past this session, then the first cohort year, so any children born after 20, well, starting 2024, 
going forward would then born in Washington state would then have the ability to be eligible uh, for this program. Uh, there is an advocacy day or a series of advocacy days uh, at the state capitol in Olympia. Can you tell us a little bit about that, how people participate and perhaps how they can get more information on that? At least perhaps I might ask you to start with that. Yeah, we're excited to gather again in person, knock on wood, in uh, Olympia for Interfaith Advocacy Day. We've been this long tradition, even before FAN started of um, having this day. And, um, and we're, we're thrilled to be back together. Now, there are other advocacy days every week. There's one, two, three, four from our coalition partners. And we encourage people to go to those too, where you can hone in on housing or immigrant rights or um, criminal justice reform or environment and realize that advocacy is not just one day. You yeah. know, it is through the session uh, every day and through the year. We have an advocacy toolkit um, on our website as well that just have some of the basics for people who need refreshers or people who you know want to help teach advocacy in their faith community. Well, I think each one of you, uh, as always, we don't have nearly enough time to talk about all the issues that you're working on and that uh, are important for people to engage on. But I hope that you'll join us at the close of the legislative session so we can see where we made progress on some of these issues and what some other avenues are. As you say, advocacy is not just a one day out of the year effort. So uh, uh, Elise and Jennifer and Kristen, thank you so much for joining us. And we'll look forward to carrying this conversation forth at the end of the legislative session. And thank you all for watching us on this edition of Challenge 2.0. We hope you'll join us again next week. If you've enjoyed this program, found our conversations to be informative, entertaining and thought-provoking and the vision inspiring of people from different backgrounds who can disagree without being disagreeable perhaps you might consider supporting our program with a contribution your support will not only help our program continue it will also support the broader efforts of past understanding our supporting parent nonprofit organization